Over the Mysterious Universe, Season 30, Episode 22. Coming up on the show, we've got the ancient American skull crushers angering the goddess of the lake. And we hear from the world's foremost dogmanologist. I'm your host, Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. To be fair, part-time leading dogmanologist. Is it you? Are you the dogmanologist? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What is Why? a dogmanologist? Why are you even questioning me? It's someone who deals with dogmen. An expert in dogmen. An dog expert in dogmen. Is this men that love dogs? No. no. Is that what you're an expert at? It, well, I mean, I do like dogs, but... <laughs> not that much. I'm not that much. Yeah, I'm not that far <laughs> yet. Uh, no, but this is actually coming on from, in the plus extension, we're going to go into uh, some incredible new reports and also some older reports of people encountering the dogmen, werewolves, essentially. And they're kind of... Sometimes they can be similar creatures, but really they're a distinct group of entities that people encounter, specifically in Pennsylvania. Uh, so I was going through a couple, a couple of newer documentaries today and got some great stories out of that, which we'll go into. But then I found this old documentary from like 20 years ago that was uh, produced with B.M. Nunnally. And B.M. Nunnally, Barton Nunnally, he produced that favorite book of mine, The Inhumanoids. Inhumanoids. Yeah, yeah he I remember the Inhumanoids. that. And much like many of the people in this field... He um, obviously started writing these stories, or not even stories, like they're allegedly true reports, but he started writing about this because it turns out his entire family has had uh, a huge amount of encounters with dogman-like creatures. Really? Yeah, including his mother. Yeah, absolute classic, this one, the Inhumanoids. Yes, so well put together, so well written. Um, I've got a paperback copy of it. And Well, I remember we liked it in the early days because it was just full of stories. Yeah. Endless stories. Yes, yeah, endless stories. And in fact, uh, a friend of the show, actually, who used to be the postman, he came in one day and saw our library. And he's like, oh, is there any book I should read? I was like, here, borrow this. And he was terrified. He came back after reading the Inhumanoids and he was terrified. He's just like, oh, there's all these bad entities out there. I'm like, look, it's not all bad. Although in the plus extension, we probably will go into some of the darker elements. Yeah, when he brought it back, I thought, dude, if you think this book is bad, just <laughs> see the rest of our library. <laughs> yeah, it gets worse. It gets a lot worse. It's always a good lesson not to deal with these entities. Yeah. So what have you got coming up? Uh, new one out from, gosh, what's his name? Douglas <laughs> Preston, which is right there in front of <laughs> Douglas me. Douglas Preston. <laughs> in giant it's golden giant text. golden letters. And just like, oh, that's... I'm so uh, tired. I went to... That guy... I went to the bathroom before the show and my eyes are just bloodshot. Thankfully, we've got this side right, view, so you can't, purpose. you can't quite see my eyes. Yeah. This, I see, it's from the author of The Lost City of the Monkey God. I remember that book. Yeah, Preston's a great writer. He did, yeah, The Lost City of the Monkey God. He wrote a book about Oak Island as well. That's really, right. yeah. Really brilliant guy. And this is, you can't really call this a new book because it's a collection of his articles that have appeared over the years in The New Yorker, for example. Right. But they're all very good. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go through some of my favorites out of this today. We're going to talk about some cannibalism maybe later in the show, some controversial stuff. Uh, but I wanted to talk about this. Well, the first story is brutal from here. And this may set us up for what's coming up. So he talks about this personal story of his, this childhood story. And he grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And across from his family lived another family. And there was a boy around his age, maybe a couple of years older. His name was Petey. And these guys were best friends growing up. Uh, they did everything together, got into hijinks together. And one day they decided to create a time machine. They got this tin box and they thought, let's put all our treasures in here and oh, when, you mean like a time capsule? A time capsule, yeah. yeah. And, when, and when we turn 18, they said, we'll dig it up together. And so they did this. They got all their favorite action heroes and their, their little books and th they drew a treasure map for it. 
And they went out to this local field and they found an oak tree. They had their compass. They did like 10 paces north and then buried it under this cedar tree. And uh, Douglas explains that they had this plan that eventually they were going to return and dig it up. But unfortunately, his friend Petey moved away to New Jersey uh, only a few years after this. And so when... gets in the way. Yeah, when Douglas turned 16, he was going through some old stuff in his bedroom and he, he found the map they made. And they made it when they were eight years old or something, right? He found this old map and he thought, I should just go dig it up. Like it's been so many years, I should go dig it up. So he goes out to this old field and he finds the oak tree. And instead of one cedar tree, there's now like a hundred cedar trees. Oh, no. <laughs> Any identifying landmarks? No. And of course, the tree that they buried it under was a young tree. So now it doesn't oh, now even it's look huge. It looks completely different. And so he finds the oak tree, though, and he paces out the steps. And he has like four or five attempts and he's digging and digging and digging. And he just can't find it. And he says it's kind of a lesson for him about how time can take things away. Yeah, but you're eight years old. I mean, yeah, kids don't obviously. care about that kind of stuff. But when he got older, he thought about that because he still had the map and he thought about Petey and he thought, you know, I haven't, we haven't been in touch for so long. I'll see if I can track him down and maybe we can go out to our, our old hometown and try and dig it up together. It'll mm. be fun. So he starts looking for his friend, Peter Anderson, and he's Googling Peter Anderson. And it's such a common name. He just he can't find the guy. It's impossible to find him. And he's about to give up until one day Petey's middle name just pops into his head and his middle name was Stark. And he's like, that's it, Stark. And he puts that into the search engine. Now, the first thing that comes up is... Oh, no. An article about a Peter Anderson being murdered, who was recently murdered that year. Uh, it was an article in the Times of Trenton. It was dated May the 2nd, 2011. The newspaper said the body of Peter Anderson was found in a boarding house in Ewing, New Jersey. The man's hands and feet were bound with packing tape. He had been bludgeoned to death with a hammer. He said Petey's middle name didn't appear in the article and it seemed that the search engine had just, you know, thrown this one up. But he said still... He was deeply troubled because yeah, the odds of this being his friend are minimal, but he couldn't rule out that it, it was his friend. So he said, realizing I wasn't going to get any work done until I knew for sure, I spent $9.95 on an intellius search of public records. And that guy on the screen is the murderer. That's not his friend, by mm. the way. Um, and yeah, the murder was. victim was his friend. Oh, and how confronting would that be? That's the first story. And that's the whole story. Like, there's no kind of twist at the end. He doesn't find the box and find some memento of a memory of his murdered friend. No, he just... Yeah, what kind learned, of story is that? He just learns that his friend got brutally murdered. And it gets worse. He discovers that his friend was murdered by the, the father of an autistic boy that he had sexually molested. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh... I'm like, oh, we're in for a treat today, if that's the tone of the stories. So that brings us to the Lake of Skeletons. Winter 1942, let's set the scene. Winter 1942, on the shores of a lake in the Himalayas, there's this forest ranger who must have this huge area to look, look after. He comes across this gruesome sight. There's hundreds of bones and skulls with the flesh still on them, 
scattered everywhere on the shores of this lake. Now, when he comes back in summer and the the snow's all melted, the ice is melted, there's many, many, many more of these, these bones around this lake. They're everywhere. There's hundreds of them. And you, the water's so crystal clear. Oh, you can see down. You can to see it. down and you can see there's hundreds more. Now, this lake is called Rupkund Lake. And it's quite infamous now because there's just, it's 16,000 feet above sea level. Uh, to get there is this insane five day trek from the nearest village. Oh, so this is why it's been pretty much undisturbed then. Yeah, and it's full of skeletons. Here's a little video clip I found today. Let's take a listen. The Tarakan, India. High atop the Himalayan mountains sits a small body of water called Rubicund Lake. For most of the year, the lake's waters are frozen. But during the summer months, as the snow and ice slowly melt away, a bizarre spectacle is revealed. Oh, how morbid. Rupkund Lake is a place high up in the Himalayan mountains in the northern part of India. It's close to the second highest mountain uh, in India, and it is mostly unremarkable. Other apart from all that, the skeletons in it. Yeah, apart from the fact that there's hundreds and hundreds of skeletons. We Do have they look thousands like... of human bones scattered around the shores of this lake. There was inscriptions or tattoos. which is exceptional. Now, these bones have been known about for a very long time. The site is visited by locals and by tourists and backpackers who have interacted with the bones. Yeah, so now they build, you know, structures out of them. And it's a little bit disrespectful that they go there. And people have been going there and taking bones as souvenirs for a long time as well, since this was kind of discovered again in the 1950s. That place is haunted as hell. Yeah, you've got to think so, right? I guarantee you it's haunted as hell. Like, there is weird entities coming at it, I guarantee you. Many of you will probably recognise the image on the screen there. It's it's quite a famous lake. I've never Uh, heard of it. And initially, when they discovered these skeletons, the British officials, because, you know, Britain was still very much connected with India at the time, they were worried that it was Japanese soldiers who had tried to invade from China. (laughs) They had come over. Oh, okay. Yeah, it that makes sense because all these, they occupied China. At yeah, all these before. bones were some kind of invasion force that went wrong. They hit bad weather or something and they all died. Well, pretty soon they they found that the age of the bones ruled that out. What age are they? Well, they they didn't have a correct dating, but they could tell that they weren't from the last couple of years. Like they were yep. just, you know, possibly old. hundreds of years old, if, yep. if not more. So the question was, well, who were these people and what the hell happened to them? Why is there a lake full of hundreds and hundreds of skeletons? Well, in 1956, the Anthropological Survey of India, they sponsored expeditions to Rupkund Lake to investigate. And they were asking this very serious question of, what happened here? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I knew inside that joke. I knew inside that, joke. Uh, inside joke. Yeah. Just the inside for joke. a while, you know. <laughs> People new to the show. If you're in the know, you know. <laughs> yeah. They serious? Yes. yes they got there. Absolutely. Buddy, what happened to you? Just inside joke. It's just, that's all you need to know. Just let it go. Uh, and <laughs> they did carbon dating. They asked that question, they did carbon dating, which was pretty unreliable back then. They mm. hadn't nailed it down, but they got back dates between 500 and 1800 years old for so, this collection of skeletons. Is there something special about that water or the environmental conditions that allow them to 
well, survive if, that long. If you look at the picture, and there's other pictures of it that are from different angles, and there's kind of like a drop off on the other side. But it's it's kind of like a funnel, like the mountains yeah. are funneling anything that falls down into it. Oh, is that what's occurring? Well, that could be part of it, and I'll get into that. Uh, here here are the theories that got bandied about. Uh, when these this anthropological survey looked into it. Number one, the lake was a place where cult members committed ritual suicide. Well, that's why I was wondering, because in that image, and perhaps I was just wrong, but it looked like there was some type of, unless it's the sutures of the bone, but it looked like there were uh, inscriptions in some of that bone. I didn't see that in the video. So I could be wrong. It was just fleetingly I saw the image. It could just be the suture of the bone, but it, it looked for a second. I'm like, oh, I'm wondering if this was ritual. That's pretty forlorn because there's hundreds and hundreds of skeletons there. More people, I mean... Um, Remember what the Aztecs did? Yeah, but they didn't do it voluntarily. Well, I'm not saying this is voluntary either. That's what they're saying. It's ritual suicide. Uh, The other option was the dead was a detachment of soldiers from the Sultan of Delhi who sent them to invade Tibet in the 13th century and it all went horribly wrong, which would basically be these guys. They thought it was full of these guys. Well, wouldn't there then be, I mean, I know that bone you know, could last a bit longer, but wouldn't there be metal? Wouldn't there be something? Well, the problem with this theory is they found one spear. Right. And that's it. So not a huge amount of uh, artifacts to reveal it would be an invading force. Maybe a group of traders that got lost on their way to Tibet because there were a bunch of like Armenians would travel into Tibet and trade there. Maybe a dumping ground for victims of an ancient pandemic. But that seems very far-fetched because if you've got to travel five days, no one's carrying loads of dead bodies for five days just to dump them. Okay, there's probably easier ways to get rid of infected bodies. But the locals locals had stories, you see. The villages that are along the route to this lake, they're, they're part of this road that's a pilgrimage and you make a pilgrimage to this mountain, Nanda Devi. It's the second tallest mountain in India. And it's considered to be a manifestation of Pavati, the supreme goddess in Hinduism. And the Nandevi in in the language means uh, goddess, mm-hmm. divine. But Nanda is a particularly like, like very early goddess in the religion who's now taken on the, the form of Pavati. But this pilgrimage, like you wind through the foothills of, of this mountain and Locals believe the goddess lives with her husband Shiva on the mountain. Spectacular. Though, inside the mountain. And there's a path along the pilgrimage that they literally call the path of death. And it is the most perilous part. Like it's very, very dangerous, which is right above the lake. So, so people trying to follow this legend have what, reached a treacherous end? Yeah, that's what you would think is... A bunch of people hit bad weather. It's really foggy. They can't see where they're going. And they fall down the mountain into the, the lake and die. But then you've got to think, this would have had to have happened a lot. Time and time again over the years for the lake to be full of, like, you can see if there's one, like, old lady who's a bit unsteady, she's going to fall down. But hundreds of people? Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense either. Is there anything about a test in the legends? Well, you're being tested by the goddess of the mountain. Mm. And it's often said, like, one speculation is people would make this pilgrimage wearing no shoes and hardly any warm clothes. And the idea Just was like that, that uh, thing that you wear on your waist. You know, the Indian guys, where it looks like a nappy. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's a very that's sacred it. piece of fabric, but... That's all you'd wear. Yeah. And if the goddess favoured you, she would allow you to not die. Which seems like a very kind of 
crazy test to put on a goddess. What if she's not paying attention that day? You're dead. Seems like a lot of, you know, a lot to put on the goddess. Well, it's also, it's a test, it's a gamble at the same time. Well, the the interesting thing about this mountain and this goddess is these villages that are along the ra- the road to this pilgrimage, when the when the scientists came and they interviewed some of them, they knew exactly where the bodies were from because they had the stories that have been passed down, the legends. So if you trace the story of uh, the goddess of this mountain, it's beautiful Princess Nanda. And she's she's not considered an earthly princess. It's like you're thinking of the age of the gods. It's a time she's period. A yeah, it's a time period from the previous yuga. So it would be gods with a small g, like the high, the high beings in some Elysium higher realm, right? And they... She has to flee her kingdom to escape some horny prince. And there's a background of like the prince challenges the king and ends up killing him. So she has to flee. And the the gist of the story is that she makes it to a foreign nation, whether it's an earthly realm or somewhere else. You know, there's various different versions of the story, but she makes it to a foreign kingdom. And she's treated really poorly by the foreign king and queen. They're rude to her. They don't follow her customs. They don't treat her like royalty, let alone a goddess. So she leaves this foreign kingdom and she's pissed. Well, no, she went into (laughs) their kingdom. She shouldn't expect them to follow her rules. I know. It's like an immigrant coming to your country and going, why don't you have my culture? Why don't you treat me like a goddess? Yeah, that's how she behaved. She um, brought drought. She brought disaster. She infested the milk and rice with maggots. Uh, and she brought plague to this foreign nation. Now, the king and the queen of this foreign nation, they realized what had the happened. Pitch out. Well, the, she had already left. And they had realized, holy crap, we've seriously offended a god and we need to fix this. So the king and the queen, they organized a huge pilgrimage to that mountain. And by this stage, she was associated with the mountain or she had merged with the mountain. Again, I don't know the full story. According to the legend, this king and the queen, they take this pilgrimage along that route, past that lake, and the king was really into his earthly delights, let's say. And when this king did a pilgrimage- the honking kind? Yeah, when he did a pilgrimage, he did a pilgrimage in style. So he brought his royal tent. He had like 30 consorts, 160 dancing girls. (laughs) He just had, you know, elephants entertaining him every day. It wasn't really the pious, ascetic pilgrimage up a mountain that you would expect. Uh, He would walk like a kilometer a day and then, you know, have dancing girls carry him the rest. And the goddess saw this and she was horrified. So according to the legend, she shoved the dancing halls down into the underworld. (laughs) (laughs) And according to the... That's her term for them. Yeah, according to the legend, you can see the thoughts from the top of the mountain today. You can look down... You can see these pits of thoughts, and and that's so. In two thousand years, there's going to be a bunch of like Instagram models at the bottom of the pit. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And not only that, once she was done with the dancing girls, she, according to the legend, she rained down a blizzard of killer hail and a giant whirlwind that swept the remaining pilgrims off the road and rolled them down into the mountain, down into the lake below. And the skeletons are left there as a warning not to disrespect the goddess Nanda. So in the 1970s, this American anthropologist got wind of this story 
his name was William Sachs, and he was doing some some research or doing some studies on on this area, and came across this story and thought, "This is fascinating. What are these skeletons doing here?" And so he and a friend organized to go there. They went to the the closest village. They paid a porter who promised to take them to the lake. And in a version of his story, I heard him tell today, and the audio was really bad. So I don't, I've got a little clip of him later, but the audio was bad. Um, he explains that it was a beautiful day. They go out hiking. They finally get to this lake. And as soon as they start walking towards the lake, this supernatural storm comes out of nowhere and instantly they're just encased in white, like white snow. He said he couldn't see a foot in front of him. It was so incredibly terrifying and dangerous. Um, You know, he had to just call out to his porter and scream out to his friend to try and find them. It was just instantly blinding. The storm came out of nowhere. And somehow they made it back to the village where they came from. He had to sleep in the porter's stone hut for 10 days to try and get over this exhaustion and this fever. He was so close to dying on that lake and joining the rest of the skeletons there. It's it's kind of ironic. So is it like some weird legend chicken and the egg scenario? It's like there's this legend that you can go up there for a test. So that's why people go up there. But because of the environmental conditions, some unique conditions, it's kind of been morphed into that's why people are being that's frozen what, that's what someone that doesn't believe in an angry goddess would say right well i don't and i'm leading towards the side of an angry goddess uh and you'll you'll discover why in a moment so in 2005 this uh anthropologist william Sachs, he was featured in a national geographic documentary about the lake mm-hmm. and the film got a bunch of archaeologists anthropologists and geneticists and technicians to uh, go down there, get as many specimens as they could and give them to research laboratories in the UK uh, and in India to study the bones. So when they got there, they discovered that uh, a landslide had exposed a fresh set of bones and estimated that the the area now had up to 700 people there. So every time people were going there, there was there was more bones to find Here's the really bad audio documentary I found. I first went to India 26 years ago as an undergraduate, and I wanted to do research on pilgrimage in the Himalayas. So while I was doing my research, I found a book in the library which described this fantastic pilgrimage up to a huge height in the Himalayas for the goddess Nanda Devi. And along the path was a lake surrounded by hundreds of human bones. I thought that this was really fascinating and interesting, and I really had to go there. As soon as we got up close, we could see that the whole landscape there is littered with bones and skulls and pieces of flesh. You can hardly take two steps without stepping on a a piece of flesh or a bone or a skull or something. It's very clear that they didn't die of any disease. They were not murdered. They didn't kill themselves or die in a landslide. If any of these were a cause of death, then bones would have revealed it. But what do the bones say? They tell a different story. And the story is pretty incredible. And the story is pretty incredible. Sounds like uh, Warren Moss from but, that old Australian paranormal series. Do you have any idea how hard it was to find that shitty documentary today? I, the only place I could find it was Daily Motion. Oh. A 360p. It took like an hour to get the audio Just that to good. extract it. It was all distorted and horrible. So what is it though? Yeah. What is the amazing discovery? Well... As that Indian guy was saying at the end there, when they did all these studies, 
and they sent you know the bones off to Oxford and everything. Uh, they quickly ruled out an army because they found women and children there. Mm-hmm. No weapons were found. There were no horses or anything. The bones showed no evidence of battle, no evidence of ritual suicide. There was no murder. They didn't die of disease or anything like that. Were there any thoughts? There was evidence of thoughts, but it was scant. Um, it wasn't a cemetery because most of the individuals were healthy, like they were young, between 18 and 35 years old. Mm-hmm. The team's geographic analysis laid rest to the idea of traders lost in the mountains as well, because there was no trade route between India and Tibet that had ever existed in the area. It's just too dangerous a way to go. Uh, no beasts of burden. So they're not carrying goods or anything. Artifacts included leather slippers, parasols made of bamboo, bangles made of seashells and glass, and the devotees of the mountain Nanda Devi, the mountain goddess, that's the kind of stuff that they wear, the beads and the bangles and that kind of stuff, the parasols. So it appeared that the dead were most likely pilgrims, but when they sent samples to Oxford, they ended up getting a tight dating period. It was to the ninth century. Um... And they concluded that all the victims died instantaneously in one event. Frozen? Well, this cold flash? This was the research from 2003. And when they looked closer, a bunch of the skulls had compression fractures in them, right? Compression fractures that weren't from a weapon, weren't from a fight, but they came from a blow of a blunt and round, heavy object. What? Now, what was the story of that goddess again? Let's take a listen. So, out of anger, she called on these iron balls to rain from the sky onto the king and queen and their entire party. Now, this is believed to be the explanation for at least some of the human remains that were found at the bottom of this lake on the mountain. Oh, I'm a believer now. The team discovered that they had been pummeled to death by giant hailstones. And look at the skulls on the screen here if you're watching the video. Oh my God. It's like it's a hole in the skull. A lot of tree cover without a lot of shelter. It's also an area that is known for intense hailstorms. Hailstorms with hail as big as your fist. Wow. Okay, so that's a brick. That's not a hail. That's a brick. That is a brick, yeah. So All the hailstones have merged together. My sister lives about an hour north of us, and she uh, messaged us a couple of weekends ago and said, we just got hit by hail and it was the size of cricket balls. And cricket balls are like one half the size of a baseball. Yeah. Incre- it just did so much damage. Imagine that, but, you know, two times Striking bigger, three skull. times bigger. You're dead. Yeah. And there's no cover. There's no trees. There's nowhere to take shelter. You're dead. And you can imagine if you're out in a caravan of pilgrims, Oh, that was the end of the clip. That was like the anticlimax. <laughs> Big anti- you can imagine if you had a. You can imagine it was so amazing, and then it fades out. So that was the conclusion. And over the years, they're killed in this crazy uh, hailstorm event. And over the years, the bodies just eventually rolled down into the lake because it's that natural funnel. So not only did the mystery of the Rupkund Lake appear to be solved, it also seemed that the local tales of the wrath of the goddess were based on an original event. Now, it's funny, like, obviously they're saying, well, this natural event happened and then the, they turned they that the story into stories. Around it. Yeah. No. No? That's the form of a goddess's redemption. 
when a goddess when a when a goddess wants to take revenge on you, sorry, not redemption, revenge. When she wants to take revenge, yeah, that's one hell of a redemption. She doesn't show up flying in the sky in a you know a, a UFO and beam a death ray into your skull. It takes the form of a natural event. Mm. That's how the gods operate. But like, with all due respect to this goddess, she didn't sound like she was very friendly. I shouldn't sound like she's very accommodating. Yeah, like she goes to someone else's kingdom and she's like, oh, yeah. why don't you treat me like a princess? She's like some kind of goddess Karen. She is, yeah. Like, and, then, go- so, and then she kills people. And the next time you go outside, you better be careful. <laughs> Especially when you're in India. I didn't come to work the other day because of that hail. I was like, nope, not driving. Yeah, I was sitting here setting up computers, which is all I do these days. Uh, and I wanted to go home, but I couldn't because there was a chance hail. of hail. Yeah. yeah. Size of golf balls. So this isn't the end of the story, though. You see, the DNA wizard himself, where is he? David Reich gets involved. And his team from Harvard and uh, is actually like dozens of research outfits across the world got involved in studying the remains. Mm. By the middle of 2017, it was apparent that the, the bones in the lake belonged to three distinct, distinct groups of people. They broke these up into uh, three groups. There was Rupkund A., and based on the DNA uh, analysis, and by the way, David Reich wrote the book, Who We Are and How We Got Here. And he's really considered the leader in the field of you know, DNA, analysis, DNA and- analysis and the history of uh, human beings based mm. on that science. So group A, typical of South Asians, right? So basically the very similar to the populations you would see there today. Um, group C, group C was kind of weird. It was just one guy. Uh, he was Southeast Asian. So it's like one freezing Cambodian dude <laughs> on the mountain. <laughs> so there is like, it's Indians and one Southeast Asian. And then there's group B. And group B was strange. You see, group B was a mixture of men and women completely unrelated to the other groups. The genomes didn't look Indian. They didn't even look Asian. Of all the places in the world, Reich said, India is one of the places most heavily sampled in terms of human diversity. He said, we have sampled 300 different groups in India and there's nothing there even close to this group B sample from the skeletons in the lake. Didn't you just do a book on this though? What was that group of, um, it was quite controversial, but it was like a group of Aryans that came down through India. Well, that's Reich's research. Oh, it's Reich's, is right? it? Right. But this is way before this. Oh, right? okay. This is, um, and it's, quite, it's in a different area as well. Right, okay. So it's, that's not the group No, then. this is the Aryans coming in and basically taking on the Dravidians in ancient India. Uh, yeah, that's his work, but this is a little bit different. So- Reich and his team, they start exploring the DNA ancestry of this group B. And they're comparing it to their database, which is obviously genomes from all around the world, right? They're comparing it to Africans, they're comparing it to Asians and trying to find a match. They find that the closest match is Greeks. Greeks? Specifically from Crete. So you've got this Indian mountain... With this pilgrimage to a goddess, and they find remains of Greeks there. Now, I'm thinking straight away, okay, this has got to be ancient Greeks. And specifically, it was closest to people from Crete. Uh, He said, look, it wasn't an exact match, but absolutely 100% sure it's people from the Aegean region, right? So 
This was 14 of the 38 people they tested. So if it's a representative sample size, there could be hundreds of these Greeks on that mountain in the Himalayas. And immediately when I saw this, I thought of like ancient Greeks, right? Greek, Greek soldiers. Think of Alexander the Great. Like Alexander the Great invaded um, India in what was it, the 4th century BC, right? Sure. What was it? Uh, that sounds about right. I had it written down somewhere. Um, so at 326 BC, that's when he invaded. And there was this cross-cultural exchange for a long time where there was a Hellenistic influence on India and vice versa. There was even Greek Buddhism at one stage. Really? Now, I, I thought it must be that. But when the carbon dating results came back, Reich and his team thought, hang on, this can't be right. There must be a typo. The Rukpun, the group A individuals died in three or possibly four events between 700 and 950 AD. Um, they don't know when the Cambodian guy died, probably around the same. But the the group B, these Greek people in the mountains of the Himalayas, they were killed in a single event a thousand years later. And the, they put them in between the period of 1650 to 1950. Okay. So that's relatively recent. I mean, it's a, like that's it's a wide period, but that's, yeah, very recent. Right. So what, and a bunch of... Greeks had gone up there after hearing the legend? They said with the dating, there was a slightly higher probability they would have been in the 18th century. So you just, hang on a second, this this doesn't make sense. Now, Reich said immediately we started looking through or reaching out to people because maybe someone would come forward and say, oh, you know, back in Greece in like the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was a bunch of adventurers who never came back. Like there was a bunch of mountain climbers who tried to go to Tibet. But surely that doesn't answer. But there's women and children yeah. as well. Yeah. Right? Uh, like, so that's not the answer. Maybe some European travelers who vanished in the Himalayas around that time. Nothing. They get nothing. And when William Sachs, that, um, the scientist I mentioned earlier, when he hears these results... He's like, no way. This is ridiculous. There's no way this is true. Is there a contamination of the samples? Something gone well, wrong? That's what he thought because he had spent years with this, with these villagers near the lake, or well, five days from the lake in the region. He learnt their languages. He learnt their traditional songs. He wrote this huge, like, ten thousand page book about it. Like the guy's an expert, and he said, if there was, if there were some explorers from Europe who died on that lake, who went on that pilgrimage, I would have known about it. There would have been songs. There would have been stories. The, lo well, the locals would have known. Perhaps not. I mean, if they somehow came in, didn't interact with anyone. You, you, you're saying, because it's the only way to go through that route they is couldn't to pass have come. by this village. They're absolutely going to notice a bunch of foreigners yeah. and it's going to be recorded somehow, like in oral tradition at least. So what's the theory? Well, we don't know. It's a mystery. No one knows who these people were. Um, he said, look, I've never had a, a hint of a story, no folktale or anything. There's no reason for them to be up there if they weren't on a pilgrimage. So perhaps it was a tribe or a group in India that was descendant from Greeks and hadn't intermarried over hundreds and hundreds of years. Like it's there's plausible, but unlikely. Very unlikely. Like the the idea that you're keeping your ethnic group 
a small ethnic group in a wider population, no one's mixing at all. Unless they had some, you know, um, religious beliefs or really hardened, you know, um, commitment to a homogenous society. I don't know. That can happen. Then there's the Kalash tribe in Pakistan. Have you seen the Kalash tribe before? No. So they claim that they're descendant from uh, Alexander the Great. Really? Yeah. And they're they're basically they're pretty white. Yeah. Um, that's a young girl. Eyesight, I guess. And there's a couple of other young. They're mostly showing the the blonde girls. And look at them. They look. Yeah, they don't look Pakistani. They look European. This is this is in the the hills of Pakistan. Incredible. Blue eyes, blonde hair, and there's been DNA studies on this population and they one study in fact did find greek heritage other studies have found european heritage but one specifically found greek although they say it's under dispute but reich's team studied their dna and he said it's totally different to this group that's in that skeleton lake that's weird it's really weird what is going on so could group B, this is the other idea, could group B have come from a population in India that's never been sampled? Right? Yeah, that's, that's another possibility. But, but the thing is, India, again, is unlikely. India is the most sampled country for DNA analysis in the entire world because there's so much diversity there. Uh, the issue with this scenario, though, is that, again, they've moved to India. They've never mixed. And when he looked at the DNA, when Reich looked at the DNA of this group B, there was no evidence of isolation or interbreeding. And that's what you would see yeah. in a group that's totally isolated. There would be genetic markers. Microsatellites would show, yeah, that kind of indication. There'd be stuff like that. And then the kicker comes in. Oh, there's, there's a kicker? Yeah. They found this... Ex- see, there's this amazing thing they can do where they can grind up the bone, right? Mm-hmm. And they can analyze the bone collagen and they did this at the Max Planck Institute and the Harvard lab. And they, they grind it up and they look at the chemical signatures in the bone and they can de- determine what your diet was, mm. which yeah, is that pretty sense. amazing. And they break it down into two chemical signatures. It's basically C3 or C4. So a person who eats a diet of C3 plants means they would eat wheat, barley, and rice. It, they would have isotopic ratios of carbon in their bones different to a person who's eating a high diet in millet, which is C4. So you've got C3 and C4. So sure enough, they do an analysis of the group B, the skeletons at Rupkund at this lake, and it reveals that they ate a diet totally different to the rest of India. See, the rest, I think they've come from somewhere else. The rest of the skeletons there, they had the typical diet of the region, the rice and everything, like it's all in there. This random group B, clearly they're not from around here. They're eating something else. Their diet, and it detects what you've eaten for the last so 10 years. Is there a database of, um, you know, that collagen analysis or bone analysis where they could go, well, you know, that type of diet is similar to a diet collected from here or there? It's not that specific. Right, it's, okay. it's, I think it's too broad. But the evidence pointed to one conclusion. When you include that kicker, they were absolutely travelers who somehow got to Rupkund. They were from the Mediterranean and they died in a single event where that goddess chimped out and started throwing giant hailstones at their heads. <laughs> and yet the historians, he said, that I consulted, uh, Douglas said specialists in South Asian Greek history, authorities on Himalayan mountaineering, for example, they said that in recent centuries, 
there was no evidence, zero, zip, of a large group of unrelated people from the Eastern Mediterranean, men and women, traveling in the Himalayas before 1950. It doesn't exist. There's no record of it. So now this starts to get really interesting because this suggests secrecy. Yes. Uh, Well, yeah, that's the thing. Just because there's no record of it doesn't mean that the event didn't occur. Yeah. There's no documented presence of any Greeks in northern India in this time period. There's no record of Europeans converting to Hinduism or Buddhism in this time period. So this is still a mystery. And my mind started to race. I'm thinking, who is this group? You've got this unique out-of-place collection of individuals who went to the Himalayas for a particular reason. Well, let's think about it for a moment in the context of this show. What's in the Himalayas, according to people like Helena Blavatsky, Olcott, Um, Shambhala? Well, Shambhala, yeah, there's the idea of some kind of hidden city, but specifically, I'm thinking of the White Brotherhood and the Ascended Masters. You know, Blavatsky spoke about this collection of... um, High, high moral, high spiritual adept individuals who kind of pulled the strings of humankind from behind the scenes. Hanging about in the mountains. And then I thought, well, I thought, is there a sect of Greek theosophy that in the 1800s at some stage were so gung-ho about it? You know what? They actually thought, let's go and find them and we'll bring our women and children and we'll go live there. That's probably the most likely scenario. And uh, that makes sense. And whenever you look at people that have ended up in faraway places for crazy reasons, like Percy Fawcett comes to mind, mm. you know, searching for lost cities, he was there because he was a theosophist and he believed in the ascended masters and the White Brotherhood and all that stuff that came from Blavatsky. But I couldn't find any evidence that theosophy had taken root in Greece at all. Obviously, it was big in in Europe and America, but there's nothing to suggest that there are any theosophists in Greece in this time period. Mm. Maybe one or two, but there certainly wasn't a community that was going to get up and leave. And you think you would hear about it. If a whole, I think like a hundred people get up and leave their country to go to Asia, people would write about it. People would know about it, right? And Greece at the time was going, like they were under the control of the Ottoman Empire. You know, there were... Later on, they were going through a revolution. I get maybe so. Maybe uh, they fled. Maybe that's a chance to flee. Maybe that's more reason to flee. Uh, is it a secret society? Is uh, you know they assume it's a large portion of individuals, but of the sample size they got, it was only fourteen skeletons that they were looking at. Right. Okay. So maybe it's a small group of adherents to some secret sect. Uh, did so, the, hang on, are you saying there was only 14 samples overall? There was 38 samples uh, overall. Yep. 14 of them were this strange group from the Mediterranean. So did the Greeks, when they were there in the 4th century BC, did they inherit, did they take some kind of secret sect back to Europe, back to the Aegean? Yes. Yeah, and then over hundreds of years, that secret society has been retained. And they wanted to, re- maybe they periodic- periodically go back. Maybe they periodically visit this region. They just happen to die on this disastrous yeah, trip. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's a regular pilgrimage. But then, you know, to your point before, there would be some record of it, wouldn't there? Yeah. And or then I, legends of it. Then I thought of Gurdjieff. Remember the story that Gurdjieff wrote about in one of his really long, wild books? Remind so, me. Gurdjieff, you know, the, the, the spiritual guru Another guy, of yeah. the 1800s. Uh, he wrote that when the British 
were in Tibet in 1903. One of the soldiers accidentally shot the leader of this group of the seven. The, oh, yes. Remember yeah. the seven adepts? Mm-hmm. So the, Gurdjieff wrote about this secret, and it's again, it's like the White Brotherhood, it's like the Ascended Masters, but he said there was only seven of them, spiritually accomplished adepts who live in the Himalayas, and they pull the strings of society. They subtly influence human forces from behind the scenes. And they came out to bre- greet the British. Their leader was amongst these locals, and one of the... <laughs> One of the soldiers was like, oh, jolly good, bang, dead. And the rest of the group were like, holy crap, that was our leader. He had all this knowledge. We need to literally save the world from demons, <laughs> right? And so according to Gurdjieff, they take his body and they do some kind of alchemic ritual to try and speak to his dead spirit. But Gurdjieff wrote that something went horribly wrong. Like As they, it always does. They cross the streams or something. He called, what did he call it? He called it a, a sob, sobrianolian contact. <laughs> no one knows what that means. He just made up this term. A sobrianolian contact. And it was like a, an alchemical Hiroshima. <laughs> and it's this huge explosion, right? He yeah, said- Crowley's like, hold my beer. And this all had to do with Crowley as well. We'll link to the episode in the show notes. But this, the timing fits just because this happened in 1903. So yeah, it's like because didn't you say 1850 was where it was dated that's to? When they were so leaning at 18th century, and it's not accurate. Century. Like that, that dating is not accurate. So maybe it's earlier, maybe it's closer to that date. So were these people like messengers for the ascended seven, the secret masters? Yeah, it starts crossing into occult groups, doesn't it? Because it is so strange. Anyway, no one knows what the answer is. No one can figure it out. Has anyone been able to document a hailstorm there? Like oh the yeah, there's that, hail so they have all the time. Yeah. Okay, but like hail that falls with such pressure to penetrate a human skull. Yes, pretty pretty regularly. Like maybe once every that, couple of years. It, or something. It must have come on so suddenly because isn't your you know kind of implicit response to like hail? Wouldn't you grab, put your hands about your head and lean down to the ground? Like it must have just been so sudden, like yeah, it's so rapid. Then you get one in the kidneys. Yeah, but even so, like, would that would you do that? Like the fact that it went through people's skull. Well, you got to think like thousands of people probably make this pilgrimage. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, and you might get one crazy hailstorm once every ten years or something. But over time, that's enough that's to enough. have a lake full of hundreds of skeletons. Incredible. Just don't piss off the goddess. You know that there's a story about that goddess of how she hates uh, Hanuman. Remember Hanuman? Was it Hanuman? Remember the monkey soldier, the head of like the monkey king yep. from the Hindu mythology, the guy that built the bridge for Rama? Yep. He was the intelligent monkey king. Apparently, he has beef with this goddess. I don't blame him. I'm on his side. Yeah. The, according to the legend, he went to her mountain and he was like, yoink. He put a, took a little stone. He took it back to Sri Lanka and she went ballistic, right? Storms for days. Um, and now in that region, you will not find a single statue of the, that monkey, monkey god. god anywhere uh you can go all over india you'll see him everywhere but you go to that region you will not find him because it pisses off that that goddess yeah, well, what does it happen like does it cause if someone takes like a little mini statue is there suddenly a hurricane of hail you get smited like if you go up that mountain with a little little monkey statue in your pocket she'll know you should test it for the show i'm about to say it's all it's a little bit tempting <laughs> just a little bit so yeah that mystery 
unexplained. I don't have any answers, just speculation. Look, that that story, though, it's better than a guy getting murdered because he molested some kid. <laughs> yeah, so that's like, true. It's, it's actually picked that's up. That's true. That, better. Yeah, we're getting better. So uh, the other favorite story that I found in his collection here was on uh, cannibalism. And he, he speaks about the Anasazi. You know the Anasazi from New Mexico? The, oh yes, the ancient the ancient people there, um, the 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 ancestors of the Hopi, mm-hmm. and they they became the most intensely studied prehistoric culture in North America, and the, it, for good reason too, because they had astonishing engineering, they had a massive road system, architecture, art, and the center of their civilization was in the Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. They had immense stone structures. Some of their structures were like four stories high. You know, huge. Uh, buildings, hundreds of miles of roads. As I said, they had shrines, they had solar and astronomical observatories, they had irrigation systems, uh, a network of signaling stations. This was an advanced civilization and they really got the attention of, um, you know, serious study in North America. But there was, again, a mystery here because they had this huge cultural explosion, then they disappeared in around 1150 AD. Uh, They seem to have... There's no reason as to why. Well, they fled from their center and the Anasazi are the ones that have, and I I should have got an image, but you know the... They have those caves in the cliff face. Yes. Where to reach it, you have to either come down from a rope or you've got to climb this huge ladder to get into their caves. It's like they had this huge civilization. Then overnight, they were living in caves high up a cliff face as if they were trying to escape from something, Mm. get away from something horrendous. So that's always been the mystery with the Anasazi. Uh, But it's also said that their society was remarkable and it was a bit utopian, a utopian society. He says the Anasazi, uh, according to the traditional view, had no absolute rulers or even a ruling class but governed themselves through consensus as the Pueblo Indians do today. They were a society without rich or poor. And warfare and violence were non-existence, perhaps completely unknown. I don't believe that. And the Anasazi were believed to be profoundly spiritual and to live in harmony with nature. Is this that, uh, like, the noble <laughs> savage kind of idea? This is like noble savage on steroids. Yeah. It's the noble communist. They didn't even know what violence was. Violence is inherently human. And because of this, I'm not going to say, let's just say, because of this historical accuracy about their civilization. So you mean inaccuracy. They became a mecca for New Age weirdos. So they had to close sites in New Mexico, like ancient Anasazi sites, because the New Agers would go there and bury crystals and then pray over them <laughs> to try and charge the crystals with the Anasazi utopian, we've never heard of violence energy. They had some harmonic... they get mugged on their way home. <laughs> they had some harmonic convergence get together there, like some conference in 1987. They had thousands of people go to an Anasazi site did a hailstorm hit it? Joint, well, we could only hope. <laughs> Join hands. They all joined hands and prayed for world peace. Look, there's nothing wrong with having good intentions like that. But to idealize, you know, ancient cultures and just say, like, it's complete absurdity. Well, it's like this picture has been painted of this perfect people, right? Who, you know, with any serious scrutiny, 
scrutiny, no human society could ever live up to that. But actually, now I think I know where this is heading because when you try to create uh, these utopias in history and the chapter is cannibalism. Well, yeah, I mean, that was, it's not meant to be like, deceptive. It's very clear where this is going. Uh, along comes in 1967, this young uh, anthropologist, his name was Christy Turner. And he started looking at the Anasazi without any of this, oh, this yeah, the is so amazing. He just started to look at the, the cold, hard data. And he was at the Museum of Northern Arizona. He was looking at some Anasazi teeth. And on the last day of his research there, he noticed this coffin-shaped box that was on the, this dusty top shelf of the museum. And he says to the curator, he's like, well, what's that there? Can I have a look? And he's like, oh, okay, well, I haven't looked in there myself, but let's get it down. They get down this coffin-shaped box. They open it up. And it's got thousands of bone shards in it, thousands of human bone shards. And it's interesting because he saw this and he told Douglas Preston that when he opened this, you know, back in the, the 70s or 1960s or whenever it was, he immediately thought, this looks like someone's just gone to town on a meal. Like this looks like a hungry family has just attacked a bucket of KFC. But obviously on a bigger scale, right? <laughs> it's like 10 buckets of human KFC. That's what it looked like to him. He just had this funny feeling about it, right? It looks like food waste. Um, so he borrowed the bones from the museum. He took them to Arizona State University. He was a professor there and he started studying them. And in 1969, he gave, uh, he wrote a paper and he presented his findings to this archaeological meeting in Santa Fe. And he informed the audience and he informed the audience that the bones that belonged to a group of 30 people, mostly women and children, had been, quote, killed, crudely dismembered, violently mutilated, and their heads in particular showed extreme trauma. He said every skull is smashed chiefly from the front and massively so. Their faces were crushed while still covered with flesh. Uh, most of the skulls had received a number of blunt, heavy club-like fracturing blows. Every skull, regardless of age or sex, had the brain exposed. Oh. Heads had been placed on flat rocks and smashed open, apparently so that the brain could be removed. There's your utopia. He went on to say that most of the bones also showed marks of cutting, chopping, dismemberment, butchering, defleshing, and roasting. The larger bones had been broken apart, marrow scraped out. Oh. Turner and Morris concluded that the bones presented the most convincing evidence of cannibalism in all Southwest archaeology. So this wasn't just, you know, cannibalism because, you know, your harvest hasn't gone well this year. This was, let's thoroughly enjoy every single part of the body, yeah. including, you know, removing the marrow from the bones. You know how extreme that is? This is like... Yeah. <laughs> it's mm. literally finger-licking good. That kind of, of can cannibalism. Yeah. Not like I haven't eaten in 20 oh, days. Yeah, our planes crashed and we're not going to survive if we yeah. don't eat this, you know... Not like Soviet Siberia, Holomador. Yeah. It's, cannibalism. It's like, I've got a taste for this. Where's the Gordon Ramsay of cannibalism? Yeah. That's where we're at. Yeah. And think of the, like, you can imagine the faces in the audience because they've gone in there like, oh, these people were so amazing. And, you know, everything they did was like, uh, because people are peace so ignorant. and love. They're so ignorant. <laughs> and this guy it's gets just... up there and he's like, 
Uh, this is the most horrific case of cannibalism the world has ever seen. And if energies like this idea of like metaphysical energies actually exist, that energy and the the horror and the negativity and all of the <laughs> ter- terribleness that's in that is in those crystals sitting on yeah. someone's you know front doorstep right and, now. And by the way, for our YouTube ad revenue, all of this is in Minecraft. This is not in real life. <laughs> this is just a simulation, and to- ads are totally fine on this show. Uh, so he obviously got called a racist. Uh, people cried well, that isn't it? he was insensitive towards the Hopi and their ancestors. And, and what research, though, have you done? Oh, you've just followed the narrative. Well, it's funny because, like, the tribe kept on um, yelling at him that he never came and sat down with them. And he's like, I don't need to. I've got the bones. <laughs> and they found that so horrible. Did uh, they ask him to dinner? Yeah, that's well, that's what they obviously wanted, to sit him down for a powwow, but it, it didn't happen. So over the next 30 years, Turner looked deeper into the archaeological record for signs of cannibalism. He went all the way back to the Hopi's Anasazi ancestors, and to his surprise, he discovered that he wasn't the first person to realize this. There were a bunch of claims from um, published archaeologists who discovered that this this was clearly cannibalism going on, and uh, the reports and the evidence and the bones themselves all ignored. It was all ignored. Ignored. No one wanted to touch it. It was too insensitive, like, you know, a sensitive topic. No one wanted to go near it. But you know what bothers me about this? What really bothers me? Is the eating of people? Well, that that (laughs) aside, right? But this whole, like, you can't talk about cannibalism because that's, that's racism. I don't know how, but regardless, because every single culture, like, okay, white people in Paleolithic times, there's evidence of cannibalism that took place. I'm yeah, like, and I'm we, like, oh my god, you can't say like, yeah. And we did it the best, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we had the best sources. That's well, we cooked everything, you know. So it's like we avoided curry. We turned them into like little desserts. <laughs> but I don't understand. Like, I don't find. That, I mean, this is just what human beings do. This is what they were animals, basically. Well, he ends up identifying seventy-two sites of cannibalism and finds two hundred and eighty-six individuals who were butchered and eaten. Seven to eight people per site. And to see how widespread this practice was, he ended up examining 870 Anasazi skeletons. From, or these were all in the Museum of um, Northern Arizona. And in the end, I think it was like one in 12 or two in 12 showed signs of cannibalism, which is insane. It's like eight or 9% of the population of the skeletons were cannibalized, were eaten. You have to wonder though, did they not have an animal population to hunt or like what would... We'll get into that. Okay, we'll get into that. So... This starts to raise questions about what caused that collapse in the 12th century. Now, he writes, uh, Preston writes, after the Chaco collapse and abandonment, many of the Anasazi, as I said earlier, they moved deep into these um, canyons. Oh my God, the caves are so they don't get eaten at night. They built their fortified caves that you needed a ladder. At the end of the day, you pulled the ladder up. That's why. Uh, later, they even abandoned these defensive positions, he writes, leaving almost the entire four corners uninhabited. They just got the hell out of there. Um, it seemed, according to some archaeologists, that these people had been seized with paranoia and that they were protecting themselves from some terrible enemy. But no matter how hard archaeologists looked, they could find no such enemy. The enemy is themselves. Now, some people in the past, I think even on this show, we've spoken about the connection to giants because there's plenty of Native American legends of giants. But I think this is going back, that those legends are going back 
way before this. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's much, much older stuff. Um, this is interesting because Preston, the author of this book, he spent three days with Turner and Turner was showing him the skulls and he details it all. Like he pulls this skull out and he shows him how they, like how they cracked it and then roasted it on a fire so that you could basically, it's like Indiana Jones, you could basically eat the brain like a delicacy. And it's it's so gruesome. I'm not going to go through details, obviously. It's too gruesome. But Turner, this, this guy that discovered all this, he still had detractors. Like there were plenty of skeptics, but some of their skepticism was a little bit ridiculous. Like one of them was this guy named Kurt Don Gosk, who was quoted in the National Geographic in 1996 as saying that Anasazi cannibalism couldn't be proven because, well, until he could prove that they actually ate the human remains. And oh, this so they just chopped them up and prepared yes, them, but didn't eat them. This was the main argument from Absurd. the tribe and from the the defenders of their reputation, supposedly. But it's not them. It's their it's ancestors. Like, it's not you. It's not them. Yeah. Um, They said, you know, there's a quote from one woman. I didn't write her name down, but she said, you know, who's to say that they didn't just butcher them and then boil their flesh in a pot as a ritual? That's still... <laughs> Horrendous, but this is this is the thing. So of course, you know, we had that big debate in Australia recently. But there's a whole heap of contemporary reports of Aboriginal cultures uh, eating each other, cannibalism being practiced. In it. Yeah, contemporary they pre- preferred the taste of Chinese. They were a Stone Age culture, and like all Stone Age cultures, they practice cannibalism. You don't look at an Aboriginal person today and go, "Oh my God!" Like they're eating each. That's not that's not what happens. This is what humans used to do, regardless of what culture you're from. And the idea that they would go to all that trouble, and it's like I drive all the way to KFC, you know, I <laughs> wait in line at that horrible drive-through, I get the terrible service, it costs a fortune, and then instead of eating the 24-piece feed with like, my family- no, I'm going to be good today. We sit there and we just go, hi-ya, hi-ya, hi-ya. <laughs> I don't know if that's what they do, but- Something like I get that. what you're saying. So this was the line in the sand. It's like- until you can prove that they actually ate the human flesh, you got nothing. Well, you know how you could prove it, I'm assuming? Because well, they matched teeth to bone. In the early 90s, there was this company called Soil Systems, Soil Systems Inc., and they won a contract to excavate a group of archaeological sites at the, sli- the, the site of a sleeping Ute mountain in Colorado on the Ute Indian Reservation. And the projector... The project director, sorry, was this guy named Brian Billman. He's now a professor at university. He and his team, they started digging in 1992. And when they started excavating, they uncovered what seemed at first like a typical Anasazi site. Um, There were the same rooms, the same trash mound, the same half. And as the team started to dig out the first... The same slow cooker. (laughs) The first Kiva, they found a pile of chopped up boiled and burned human bones at the base of one of the vent shafts where, you know, they would dump it. It looked as though they'd been chopped up and cooked outside and then dumped down the shaft. In the second structure, they found the remains of five individuals. It appeared that the bones had been processed inside the kiva itself. And instead of boiling, it was like they roasted them inside. The skulls had been placed down upside down on the fire, roasted, then broken open, and the brains cooked and scooped out. In that same uh, 
structure, the team found a stone toolkit, and when they got that analysed, they found blood on the blade, and it was human blood. Still, none of this is evidence of cannibalism. It's killing humans, chopping them up. And somehow, you know, preparing them. Preparing them for dinner, but then it's just, it's just a ritual. But then, in the middle of the half, they find what's called a coprolite. You know what a coprolite is? No, I don't. Is it like some type of copper bowl or something? An ancient human turd. Right. That can be the title of the show, Ancient Human Turd. No, that's not going to be the title of the show. <laughs> um, and so they find this ancient, like, fossilized turd, and they're like, why is this? It's, okay, it's, it's in the middle of the hearth. It's, like, in the middle of the center of the home. It's, like, the most important part of the home. Is it hearth or hearth? Doesn't matter. I'm going to say hearth. They weren't shitty these two, were they? Well, there was a guy that could figure this out. His name was Richard Marler, the Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Colorado. He figured out that he needed a way to identify human tissue that had passed through the digestive system of another human being and then somehow analyze to see if it was in that ancient fossilized human turd. And I spent six years at university for this. <laughs> I won't. There's a whole section. Actually, that would be like eight years to get to that point. There's a whole boring <laughs> section on this. I'm just going to skip. Uh, but essentially, at when he wrote this article, Preston asked the guy who interviews him, he's like, Well, you've done the study. Like, what were the results? He's like, I can't answer. I can't tell you. He's like, What do you mean you can't tell me? He said, The tribe has asked all the excavators to keep the results confidential until the paper could be published because they're groundbreaking. But he said at the time there were rumors flowing about the results and that it was all, it had all tested positive. And this was obviously written years ago. The paper came out. They found um, human protein in the poo. So that whole line in the sand of you've got to be able to prove that they were eating it. There it is. He finds a fossilized turd that proves they were eating human beings. I'm sure that there'd still be people in denial and would find ways to. It becomes a delusion to, you know, idealize ancient cultures. But the, then the question comes down to, then like you move the goalposts even further. You're like, well, you know, they were starving. Like, you know, I, I don't blame the Chinese or the Russians in the depths of, you know, communist horrors who turn to cannibalism. Or like, a bunch of footballers that are in a plane crash. We can't imagine of yeah, not. what it's what it is like to experience that kind of hunger. Just people in the West don't have that kind of hunger. We have we have the opposite of that. We yeah. eat we way too much. Way too much. So, you know, I, I can't judge the people in those situations. But what's your line though, Ben? Like how is it when they start preparing it? Dude, I would eat you. <laughs> I wouldn't even think twice. <laughs> I wouldn't even have to be that hungry. That's oh, that's great. Oh, that's <laughs> if, I, oh, if we're ever in a plane crash, I'm making sure I, oh, I'm taking a different plane to you, so that never happens. Some days I look at you and I'm already thinking of recipes. Is <laughs> <laughs> it like the whole Alex Jones thing? Like I'm going to eat. Yeah, it's my like neighbors. if you're in the kitchen, the office kitchen, and you turn like a certain angle, I get a, like a glance of your thigh. <laughs> 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 I'm like, yeah. okay, this is creeping me out. <laughs> Bit of soy sauce. <laughs> Bit of soy sauce and some shiitake mushrooms. I'm too salty and I'm all stringy <laughs> from being so angry all these years. Dude, you would be so stringy. Uh, see, there you go. I'm worn out. I'm just tired and stringy. You would be unbelievably stringy. But the question is, were the Anasazi in that situation? Yeah, was there droughts? Would there be some type of uh, geological record? Yeah. Now, there was a drought right. and it's understood that that drought was pretty severe in the region. 
but the neighbouring tribes didn't eat anyone. Did it kind of just kick things off? Like they, it was like it was so horrible. It was so dreadful that they were like, we we cannot you know break this taboo. We cannot do, cross the line. And then they cross the line, and they're like, you're like, mm, <laughs> this is <crazy." laughs> well. Turner argued that. The extreme mutilation of the bodies before they were consumed, the the huge deposits, because sometimes it was like 35 people eaten in one sitting. And that's like... It's um, like a Bacchanalian feast. <laughs> that's a ton. That's one ton of meat. Oh, my God. Right? And they're eating everything. And they're, they're eating the whole thing, or sometimes just discarding it, right? Starvation. Well, they wiped out from prions. Starvation cannibalism did not explain it. Uh, furthermore, he said there was no evidence that the neighbours, the Hohokam or the Magolan, who had the same drought, the same harsh environment, there's no evidence that they did any of this, that they practised this cannibalism. So there was a colleague of Turner's, his name was David Wilcox, and he had developed a map of their civilization's great houses, those huge st- stone structures, right? And when Turner got a look at his maps... He over, it's one of those classic like cliches where they got his map of cannibalism sites and they overlaid it on his map of the ancient central structures and they Match totally up. matched up. Yeah. So what this proved was that the elites were eating people oh, yeah, in the ancient Anasazi time period. It's all old hat. Like this is cyclic stuff. The elites are just like, they get to a point where it's like, well, I've got so much money. I've got so much power. I've crossed all the taboos. What's one of the final taboos? Actually, there's two. Screwing dead people and eating dead people. That was pretty much all going on. So whenever they were called great houses, and these were the huge stone structures. So obviously the elite, the rich, the powerful, they, they owned, they inhabited these structures. And the eating of human flesh seems to have begun as the civilization began around the year 900. It peaked when it collapsed. And at, this is around 11.50, and then it basically disappeared. So this is Turner's theory. He claims the cannibalism was used by the powerful, a powerful elite at Charco Canyon as a form of social control. Oh, wow, that makes sense. Because it in, invokes fear. Yeah, it was control. It, it, it was social control, and that, that picture is obviously not <laughs> social control, but... He said, what better way to amplify opponents' fears than reduce victims to the subhuman level of cooked meat? The benefits would be threefold, he said, for those elites. Community control, the control of reproductive behavior, so dominating the access to women. And of course, it would control food as well. The second question Turner asked was, who were these cannibals and where did they come from? He said, I couldn't find cannibalism in California or the Great Plains, so where is it coming from? Is it coming from Mexico? So Turner turns his attention to central Mexico with the Toltecs. So the Toltecs lasted from around the same period, 800 to 1100 AD in central Mexico. And they developed a very powerful, dehumanizing, sociopolitical and ideological complex centered on human sacrifice and cannibalism, all for that social control. Mm. So this is his idea that during this Toltec period, a heavily armed group, it probably wouldn't have to be many, because remember the Anasazi were like, we don't even know yeah. what violence is. Oh my is. God, this is the thing. That, see, people are so obsessed with being controlled and you know governed that they will idealize an ancient 
you know, horrific <laughs> elite cannibals. group of cannibals. Literally savage cannibals. So they they entered the Wan Basin around AD 900. They found a very pliant population. They terrorized them and controlled them and essentially replicated the civilization, the system they had built in uh, in Mexico. You know, I, I'm being more serious here now. I do wonder if, you know, some of these collapses did relate to some form of, you know, Prion's disease, spongiform encephalitis, yeah, something maybe. like that. Because when you consume, when you commit cannibalism, and they wouldn't have known about it, but you put yourself at extreme risk for prion disease. Yeah. So you end up becoming nuts, like literally nuts because you have holes in your head. So it's like this vicious cycle where you eat one dude, which is already a bit crazy, but that makes you more crazy. So you want to eat two people. Well, if that, I don't know, but it's just like maybe that could, over a longer period of time that mm. contributed to the collapse. So a lot of the their art and mythology matches as well from the Anasazi and the Toltecs. Mm -hmm. It's very similar. Uh, they've got, you know, ancient stories that are kind of the same. And the some of the native tribes have legends that talk about this, that, that this force came up from the south and it was like an evil force that changed them. The Navajo have many stories about Chaco Canyon and to the Navajo, they're enemies. Like these are the yeah, great- Yeah, I'm wondering if they pushed back. The great evil. Um, and he's like, this is- polar opposite to the new ages burying crystals there and holding hands and singing kumbaya so that's interesting though then if you've got the navajo who are saying you know these people are why was no one listening to the navajo because i don't know it's like selective yeah it's what's the selective noble savage right um so the 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 older navajo say that the charco this region was a place of hideous evil mm. Hideous evil. Uh, do they mean more like as well, like the, it was like a spiritual infestation? Yes, beyond cannibalism. Yep. They said that the people, the people abused sacred ceremonies. They practiced witchcraft, cannibalism, obviously, and made a dreaded substance called corpse powder by cooking and grinding up the flesh and bones of the dead. The Navajo said their evil threw the world out of balance and they were destroyed in a great, uh, great earthquake and fire. Probably so, buy from some pissed off uh, Indian goddess. The moral of this story, yeah, I'm glad you said that because the moral of this story is the wrath of the gods is two-sided. Yes, they can uh, punish you for not treating them like a queen, <laughs> but they can also, also punish you for hideous evil and they'll destroy your entire civilization for unquestionable evil self-evident evil again though it's like i feel like this is like a kind of a rhetorical question but it's like people go well how did you know nazi germany get to be nazi germany i'm like how did that culture get that way like what happened that the elite started going let's eat people like imagine how why'd you bring up the nazis they weren't eating anyone no no but what i'm so the question that people ask all the time people go how is it possible that the nazis got to the, oh, the way see. that they are i see what like, you're saying how did that happen i'm like well how did this happen uh Seriously. i think graham hancock's a uh, fiction book's on the blood, war god, the war god, yeah, the kind of blood demon yeah. behind those cultures, like an entity of some kind. I, I'm inclined to believe that that's playing a role. I haven't read them. I hear they're good. Yeah, they are. From from what I've heard, but that's probably them. what's behind a lot of that is their gods are actually demons. Yeah, they're not gods at all. Yep, and they so, lead people astray and start eating each other. I'll link to all that good stuff in the show notes. <laughs> I think you need to go home and meditate, though, Ben. I don't want to get eaten. I don't want some entity attaching itself to you. That's what's going on. Who is this guy again? What's his name? Can't read it there. I think it's I think it's um, 
Um, Lost Douglas Lost, Destin? Lost Preston? Douglas Preston. Something like that. Number one New York Times bestselling author of The Lost City of the Monkey God. Monkey God. The new one is The Lost Tomb, which again is just a collection of articles from The New Yorker. So if you read The New Yorker, you're probably like, yeah, I know all these stories. Great stuff. But uh, there's, a great, there's a great collection of um, stories in there. He does the Dyatlov Pass as well. Yeah. There's a chapter on Oak Island. Does he come up with a theory as to what happened with the Dyatlov Pass or is it... Um, More open-ended. It was this really pissed off... Um, Hungry deity. Chimp, uh, goddess that chimped out. <laughs> she was like, oh my God, fuck you. And then she just hurled. Here's some infrasound. Yeah. <laughs> wiped him out. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Tons of stuff coming up in Plus. Werewolves and Dogmen are coming up. We're going to be covering uh, a few uh, really great documentaries. We're going to go into The Hunt for the Dogman, which is a re-release of a 2007 uh, documentary that was put out by Barton Nunnally and uh, John Johnson. We're also going to go into Werewolves Unearthed and, of course, American Werewolves as well from, uh, I think it's, what have we got it here in front of me? Uh, that one is with uh, Seth Breedlove. We just happen to have the world's foremost dogmanologist live in the studio today. There you go. He will exclusively be making an appearance in our Plus extension. And he is delicious. He's a delicious man. <laughs> Stop. He's a delicious looking man. <laughs> <laughs> Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Sign up today. Get access to the big extensions we do on these shows every single week. And, of course, Plus members get an entirely exclusive show that comes out on Tuesday as well. You're getting more than double the content if you sign up for plus plus members also get uh, access to a higher quality mp3 version of the show a totally ad-free version of the show as well and if you sign up for our mu max tier you get access to our i want to say 17 plus years I'm i think say it actually 17 is i think years. it needs to be updated yeah 17 like years of content that's why my lower thirds say i've just about <laughs> mcfing had it <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap for this show. MysteriousUniverse.org forward slash plus. Sign up today. Nine bucks a month. Help support your favorite show. But that's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Plus extension, great to have you with us. I should have mentioned.